Welcome to B&B Financially Free, the podcast for ambitious individuals chasing financial freedom through buying short-term rental investments. We're your hosts, Chantel and Peter, and we're the founders of Good Neighbor Realty. Our brokerage has helped hundreds of people turn their active income into passive income by buying unique properties in incredible locations that are earning a ton of money. On this show, we'll bring on a diverse range of guests from industry experts to everyday people who have achieved extraordinary results in their short-term rental investments, businesses, and personal lives. Whether you're seeking tactical advice or trying to unlock your richest life, BNB Financially Free is here to join you on the journey. All right, and welcome to another episode of B&B Financially Free. I am here with CPA extraordinaire, <laughs> Troy. Uh, thank you for being here today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, I am so excited to talk with you about some like big burning questions that everybody has in the industry. But before we get into how short-term rental investors can benefit hugely from a tax perspective... Can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, how long you've been in the industry, and what type of clients that you typically work with? Yeah. Uh, so I started my first job when I got out of college was as an auditor at the IRS. So I used to be an auditor in the small business and self-employed division of the IRS. Is that um, what baby Troy always dreamed of becoming? No. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how I got into that, but... Uh, I do, actually. It's a long story. I'm on the good side now. Uh, most of our clients are either small business owners, self-employed individuals, or in real estate in some capacity. Um, we have a lot of realtors as clients, a lot of lenders, developers, um, the GCs that help with the fix and flips. Um, so anything real estate related um, is kind of our niche. I own a few rental properties, both short-term and long-term. We own our commercial property where our office is located. So I'm into it uh, pretty deep. And that's kind of why I wanted to make sure that I knew everything available mm -hmm. um, from a tax perspective. I've done 1031 exchanges with my own properties. Um, we're doing short-term rentals right now. So um, I I feel like if you were to break down our uh, firm, you'd you'd see that there's a lot of self-employed people, a lot of small business owners, and a lot of people in the real estate industry. Perfect. Well, let's just jump right into it. So the thing that everybody is talking about right now is being able to take advantage of bonus depreciation through cost segregation. And there's a lot of confusion on who can take this benefit and why. So let's start off with why can short-term rental investors take advantage of this benefit even when they're not tax professionals and passive long-term rental investors are not able to take the same benefit? Yeah. So if you back up a little bit, the IRS considers rental property as a passive activity Okay. unless you're a real estate professional. Short-term rentals, as long as the average night stay is under seven days, is not considered rental activity. So the IRS considers that an active, engaged business, as long as you meet certain criteria. Um, and that's what allows non-real estate professionals to deduct those losses that are generated from the cost segregation studies that you're talking about against other ordinary income. Mm. A short-term rental is not considered um, rental real estate in the IRS's 
view because it's an active business as long as the average night stay is under seven days. So that's how they qualify. Like you mentioned, if you're a real estate professional, it doesn't have to be a short-term rental. You just have to materially participate. So there's a lot of different Mm -hmm. rules and words, material participation, active participation, passive activities. But to just to distill it all down, if it's a short-term rental, mm-hmm. the average night stay is under seven nights throughout the year, um, a non-real estate professional could qualify to deduct those losses as long as they meet all the, the thresholds that are generated from doing a cost segregation study. It's, cool. We, you know, we have a lot of both real estate professionals and non-real estate professionals that take advantage of um, those rules. And you're right. It's very prevalent right now. I bet one out of every three calls is how can I qualify for this and how can I take advantage of it? Doing it the legit way. You know, we want to make sure we've got to sleep at night. Um, Mm -hmm. Our clients want to sleep at night, but they want to also take full advantage of this as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe we can back up a little bit too, for those who might be new to this space or, you know, have no idea what we're talking about at this point. So um, let's kind of go through and define what bonus depreciation is and what a cost segregation study is. And maybe in an example of, you know, someone that is purchasing a property and how this could impact them from a tax perspective. I think that's a great idea. And I think we should even back up a step further and just Using the example, mm-hmm. if you don't have bonus depreciation and you don't have cost segregation, how you would normally depreciate the That's property. That's a great idea. So a short-term rental um, would normally be depreciated over 39 years. So let's just take a very simple example. Let's say you buy a property for $500,000 and you got to break out the land value and the asset value. So let's say the land is 10% of that and the structure is the other 90%. Mm-hmm. On that 90% of the structure, you've got to spread that cost out over 39 years. You're depreciating it over 39 years. Even if the asset is appreciating in value, which Mm -hmm. normally they do, Mm -hmm. that's why you invest in real estate, um, you get a depreciation deduction, which is a non-cash. It's not money going out the door. It's just Mm -hmm. a tax deduction for 139th of the value of that 90% of the structure. Mm -hmm. So that's normal rules. It's a good tax benefit. But it's not as good as it could be. That's mm-hmm. what we're going to get into. So in this example, you know, you generate rental income, then you get to write off your mortgage interest, your property taxes, your repairs and maintenance, um, any expenses that you have for that property. Mm-hmm. Plus, you get to deduct the depreciation, which is one thirty ninth of the value. Mm-hmm. Where a cost segregation comes into play is you pay a company very similar to paying um, like a, an appraiser mm-hmm. to go into the property and segregate the cost so that you don't have to spread that 90% out over 39 years. What they do is they generate a report that tells me, the CPA, okay, on this specific property, there were doors and lights and carpet and fixtures that you can use bonus depreciation on and you can write off all of those costs in year one. You can depreciate those in year one. Wow. Then there's another asset class that might be over a three-year period, and then another asset class over a five-year period. And then the the small amount, if it's a good cost segregation candidate, the small amount you still spread out over 39 years. 
So essentially what you're doing is you're front-loading all of those write-offs instead of evenly spreading it out over 39 years, you're front-loading it all into the first one, three, five years of the property. Got it. So what does that typically look like? Like if we were to look at a $500,000 property, what amount of the purchase price would you estimate to be the bonus depreciation? That's a good question. And there's not a typical amount. It, it's based off of so many variables, which is why you've got to pay the cost seg company to go in and do it. But it's based off of the age of the property. I'll give you some examples, some recent examples so that you have a general idea. The better the cost segregation study is, the more we can write off in the first few years. I've seen, you know, on a $500,000 property, I've seen us be able to write off $350,000 in year one. Um, and then the rest is spread out over the, the rest of the life of the property. So it could be that high. Um, it's like 40%. Yeah, but more than that, if it's five, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it could, it could get really high. We don't know until we get that cost segregation study back from the company. And these cost segregation companies, they're getting a lot better about estimating ahead of time because the fees to do a cost segregation study are pretty high. They, you know, any, I've seen anywhere from three to $8,000, depending on the size of the property, the age of the property, the location, kind of variables. Um, but when the cost segregation, when you engage a cost segregation company to do the study, They'll give you an estimate first before you pay anything. They'll say, you know, based off of the location, the age, the square footage, this is what we think you're going to find. Mm -hmm. But you don't get exact numbers and I don't get the report until you pay them to come out and go through that house or that property with a fine tooth comb. Got it. Yeah. So my my business partner and I have done cost segregation on a few of our awesome. properties. Yeah. Good. Awesome. Um, and we actually got our tax liability to zero in 2022, which was awesome from doing that. So what we saw was our fee was between, just like you said, between $2,500 and $4,000 per property for the study. And we typically landed between 25 and 40% of the property's value in year one loss. So what does that mean just for people who might be new to this space? So let's say that, you know, I just bought a $500,000 property to make things simple. Let's say that I earn $300,000 a year in my W-2 and I have a cost segregation study for $250,000 in deductions. How does that affect my tax liability? If it's a non-real estate professional, but it's a short-term rental that they're actively participating in, meaning they don't have, and materially participating in, meaning that they don't have a property manager managing it for them. Mm -hmm. There's, this is definitely the warning that I want to give all of our listeners. There are certain criteria you have to meet, but as long as the, the criteria are meet and it's a short-term rental and you don't have somebody else managing it, you're spending the right amount of time in that activity, they would get to write off $250,000 of that loss against their W-2 income. The example that you gave is a perfect scenario. We are trying with our clients to get the tax liability from all their sources of income mm -hmm. down to zero. Mm -hmm. um, and I think now is a good time, you know, people are hearing getting their tax liability down to zero. That's, that's the huge benefit of doing it. The second question I always get when I go through this with clients is what's the downside? Mm -hmm. And the downside is you're writing that property down to zero, essentially in the first few years, mm -hmm. meaning 
if you were to turn around and sell it, you're going to have a huge tax liability. Mm -hmm. So the second part of the strategy, the first part is doing a cost segregation Mm -hmm. and taking those write-offs as quickly as you can get them. Mm -hmm. The second part of the strategy is if you're going to sell it, sell it in a 1031 exchange. Mm -hmm. So you can do that on the next property. So you're deferring the tax and not paying it when you sell it. Um, And then you do a cost seg on the second property. That is really interesting to think about. So yeah, I, that was my concern when I started, I was like, okay, you know, if I'm deducting like these huge losses in year one, what's the downside? You know, at what point do I have to pay that back? Because we're talking about a lot of money in tax savings and that doesn't just go away. And something that you said um, last time we talked was like, defer, 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 die. die. <laughs> that's, my, that's one of my favorite things. <laughs> it's my favorite saying too. <laughs> so, um, so in that example, you know, if I bought a short-term rental for 500000 I had a cost segregation study showing that 250000 in loss, I earned 300000 in my W-2. All of a sudden, my tax liability is only 50000 like assuming I don't have your other, taxable income my is tuss- only 50,000 yeah. and then you get a standard deduction your tax liability is probably going to be 0 to 2 grand on $300,000 in that scenario. Yeah, that's crazy. And I've seen it work in real life, a lot of examples. Um you know, we make sure the clients follow all the rules and and that they're prepared for an audit. I always tell everybody especially when when you're taking a $250,000 deduction, let's just assume that there's going to be an audit. Let's mm. get the file ready now. Here's why we qualify. Here's the steps we took. Here's why we're taking this deduction. You know, knock on wood, we haven't seen any audits come out of it. The IRS has been kind of sitting on their hands the last few years, but they're going to happen at some point in time, especially as more and more people um, take advantage of these rules. And I like to use the word take advantage. We're not doing anything illegal. We're just following, you know, how the code is written. Um, you know, my staff will tell you, we, we go through the training, we go through the rules, uh, a lot throughout the year because we have so many people that do it and we want them well-versed to be able to explain to the client, this is not going to qualify. That's the worst conversation is when a client comes to us and said, I did a cost seg. I have this long-term rental. I have a property oh, manager. No. I have a full-time W-2 job at, at Google. You know, we got to tell them it's, that's awesome. You did a cost seg. It's not going to help you out really because those losses are suspended mm-hmm. in that situation. Got it. That's okay. the difference between passive losses and active losses essentially is being able to use it or not being able to use it. Okay. So let's go through like the type of person who can do the cost segregation study. So let's say that, you know, I'm someone that has a normal W-2 job and I am buying a short-term rental. What qualifiers do I need to be aware of to be able to qualify for the bonus depreciation? The two main ones are that the average night stay needs to be under seven nights okay. on average. So you could have somebody that books out your place for 15 days as long as the rest of them you know, are two to three days. And throughout the year, the average night stay is less than seven. That's the first. Second is not using a property manager and nobody else spending more time on that property than you are. Okay. Um, so that means you're actively managing it like a business. You're handling the day-to-day bookings. You're handling, you know, getting the cleaners in and out of there. That's why the IRS allows this to not this a short-term rental to not be specifically considered rental real estate because of the time that's involved in managing a short-term rental. They mm-hmm. view that as an active business. Mm-hmm. Um, and to back up a little bit, you know, your question was, and this is just 
logistics, your question was who can do a cost segregation? Anybody mm-hmm. can do one. Being able to take advantage of the loss and write it off against your W-2 wages is key. Mm-hmm. So anybody can do one. Being able to use those losses is what we're really trying to determine before they go out and pay fee to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Um, is there a scenario where someone can have a W-2 and a property manager and still take advantage of that? Or do they really need to be actively managing? I can't think of a scenario. I'm sure there are situations that it could work because there's seven ways and I don't have them memorized. Mm -hmm. Um, We could potentially pull them up and go through them. But um, for material participation, there's seven ways to meet those rules. If you're a non-real estate professional, Mm -hmm. if somebody's spending more time on the property than you are, you've got to meet really, really high thresholds, like spending more than 750 hours a year in real estate. Mm -hmm. So the burden of proof becomes really, really high. The two that I mentioned are just the two easiest ones Mm -hmm. and the clear cut ones. But short answer is yes, it could be potentially possible depending on the situation. It's just difficult. Way, way, way more difficult if it's not a short-term rental and if you have a property manager or if it's a short-term rental and you have a property manager, way more difficult, Okay, but potentially still doable. If you can meet one of the other, so the other ones are 750 hours. Um, I don't have them memorized and maybe we can just share the link with everybody, but the, the two that I mentioned are the easiest to qualify. That's kind of an interesting thing that 750 hours, because like, I, I guess it would be possible. That's like three hours a day on comes out to I think 16 hours a week is um, the way we did the math. So yeah. if you have a full-time W2 job, you're going to have to really have some good documentation on how yeah. you're meeting 16 hours a week on a long-term <laughs> rental, first of all, or a short-term rental that you're not managing. Yeah. Hard to get They're there. just spending like the night, like <laughs> testing the bed quality, enjoying the amenities. Actually, because you also can't use the property personally oh. for over a certain number of days. So there's... Do you know what that number this of days is, is by chance? 14 days is the number you got to be careful about. Okay. So no more than 14 days annually. Are you supposed to use it personally? And then you prorate those days when you get above that. So there, that, you know, this is a great conversation because your our listeners are able to see there's so many variables and mm-hmm. it really is, you know, not only a property by property situation, but a taxpayer by taxpayer situation too. Yeah. It's totally individual. Cool. And then, um, so for people that maybe haven't done this yet, and maybe they had a short-term rental that they purchased in 2020, 2021, could they go back and retroactively do this study and amend those tax returns? The short answer is yes. You wouldn't need to amend the returns. You could do the cost segregation study um, at any time that you own the property And let's say you're depreciating it over 39 years in those first two years. In the third year, when you do the cost seg study, you just file a form with that third year's tax return, Mm -hmm. notifying the IRS that you're changing your accounting method. Got it. And then you catch that depreciation up on that tax return. You don't have to go back and amend returns. Got it. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. You can do it after you've owned the property. You don't have to amend. You get all that in the first year. Okay. So it kind of catches itself up. And at the time of this recording, what percentage of bonus depreciation can people use for this tax year? And how is that changing in the future? It's 80%. Um, so first of all, you got to figure out on the cost seg how much qualifies for bonus depreciation. And now bonus depreciation went from 100% down to 80% this year. 
So as of this recording, 2023, 80% of whatever is a one-year asset for bonus depreciation would be able to be deducted. So in your scenario, if that was $100,000 of bonus depreciation, they would get to use 80000 of that in year one. Okay. And what's happening next year? Going down. I don't have the exact numbers. I think it's going down until the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act expires. And I think it gets down to as low as 60%. Yeah, I think next year is 60%. Yep. Do you know why it's being phased out? I don't know why Congress does anything, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's a, a Congress thing. And it, I think there was some give and take on getting a lot of the benefits that went through the Tax Jobs Cut. Act. I'm not sure if I used the right wording there, but um, so it's you know they they had to negotiate, and that was one of the negotiating chips. They said we'll reduce this, you know, over a period of time, so it gets down to sixty percent. I think you know when there's bonus depreciation available and there's more to write off, it really rejuvenates the economy more because, like in your situation, people are not sending that money in for taxes; they're using it to spend on other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our people that take advantage of cost segregation <clears throat> and they're saving this money on their taxes now, all of a sudden, they're able to purchase another property, and now they're hiring a new cleaner and they're hiring a new I'm maintenance person. I'm glad you person. mentioned that because the the clients that I'm working with and they're um, you know high volume successful realtors, so they're they qualify as a real estate professional, but we work with clients that don't as well. The The best strategy is to do it like every two to three years with the money you would have been sending in for taxes, use that for your down payment. You end up with a huge real estate portfolio. You're not, you're legally not sending in any money for taxes if you're following all the rules and you qualify. And it's a great way to build your portfolio, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I think so too. So let's go back to the scenario. So let's say that, you know, I purchased this property for 500,000. I'm managing it as a short-term rental. It's been going well for me for the last two years. Now I'm ready to sell. Mm -hmm. And on this property, I took that $250,000 loss. Right off. Yeah. Yep. What are the consequences now and how, like, give me a worst case scenario and tell me how to avoid it. Cause you had a bad story about this. Yeah. So, um, the worst case scenario, let's say you buy it for 500,000, you write off 250 in year one, and then probably another 10 to 20 in year two and year three. So you've written off 300,000 of the $500,000 purchase price. If you bought it for 500,000, you've depreciated 300,000. You turn around and sell it. And let's just assume you sell it for exactly what you bought it for, but that usually mm-hmm. doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say you did. If you turn around and sell it exactly what you bought it for, you've got to you've got to pay taxes on that depreciation recapture of three hundred thousand because you already wrote it down. So your basis now is only two hundred thousand. Um, so the worst case scenario would be having to pay all that back if you didn't do a ten thirty one exchange. So if I'm in the highest tax bracket, and I know that this isn't going to be exact, but let's just say I'm in the highest tax bracket. How much tax savings is that 250K right off roughly? If your effective tax rate is the same as your tax bracket, which usually it's not, but let's just say it is, you would save 37% on 250,000. Wow. So $85,000. $85,000. So (laughs) if I was to go and sell that property and I didn't do it the right way, I didn't have a plan, after selling that property, I would have to turn around and pay the IRS $85,000. So here's one of the benefits. The depreciation recapture rate is is a lower rate than your effective tax rate. 
Okay. So it's not as high, but you would have to pay tax on the $250,000. And I think the story that I was telling you is I had a client that did this and then they sold the property and then they called me and they said, I want to do a 1031 exchange. You cannot do a 1031 <laughs> exchange after you sell the property. You got to sign up with a 1031 exchange intermedi- intermediary before you sell the property. Yep. So if you're going to do this, you know, the best advice I could give to any of our listeners, engage a, a CPA that knows what they're doing, have a game plan in place written out or in writing or an email or something with the deadlines, the important steps. You don't want to start selling things or buying things without having that discussion ahead of time so that everybody's on the same page. Got it. So in that scenario, I didn't have a plan. I sell I saved $85,000 through doing this cost segregation study. I would have to go and pay that money back to the IRS. When you sold it, and it wouldn't be exactly 85, but But whatever whatever the number is, you're going to owe that tax money back. Got it. Because you got the benefit for it and now you're selling the property. So how do I avoid doing that? The only way to avoid it, if you have to sell, is to do a 1031 exchange. Okay. So the two ways to avoid it is to not, one, not sell. And two, if you do have to sell, do it in a 1031 exchange. Okay. So let's say I 1031 exchanged into something that was $600,000. How does that affect the next asset? How does that tax savings follow me over to the next one? Yeah. Great question. So if you sell the first property and there's $250,000 of gain that you're not going to pay tax on right now, you're Mm -hmm. deferring Mm -hmm. your, your next property, you got to reduce the basis the $600,000 price by $250,000 of the gain that you didn't want to pay tax on when you sold it. Okay. So you're only going to have $350,000 of basis available for depreciation, cost seg. And one of the rules of a 1031 exchange is you always have to trade up because you got to replace all your original debt. You can't Mm -hmm. walk away with any cash proceeds. Got it. You're always trading up, but the basis is always going to be lower depending on how much your gain is. Got it. So the best way for me to do this would be to sell the property, doing a 1031 exchange, buy a more expensive property. I'm going to have to lower the amount that I can take from a cost segregation study, but I still have something that I could do another cost segregation study on on that property. You got it. And really, in my opinion, if the first property was performing well, the best thing to do is not sell the first one at all. Come up with enough of a down payment just to buy another one and do a whole new cost save. Mm-hmm. But every you know four to five years when you run out of pre- depreciation and maybe it's not performing as well, that would be the time to replace that first one with a new one and then start the depreciation and the cost save all over again. Got it. Yeah. I think that I'm under that belief system too. Like I would love to keep every property that I possibly (laughs) can. Like I, you heard it here. I've actually never sold one of my own properties. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. Um, I'm like four or five years into the game. So we'll see how long we'll hold them. But I would love to be able to keep all of them. And what our investors do is instead of selling the property, they will cash out on some of the equity. They might do a cash out refi. They might take a HELOC to purchase the next property and they'll use leverage and keep all of their assets because those assets continue to grow in appreciation and they're cash flowing. I'm in the same camp that you and your investors are in, you know, taking those, um, pulling equity out of those properties that you can utilize to leverage and get a a 
property that's going to perform as good or better. Um, it's really the quickest way to expand your real estate portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, that equity is locked up until you refinance or pull it out. And then when, once you do that, you can buy your second property and your third. In your situation, if you never sell those, you're going to be in really, really, really good shape. So just time alone will, the appreciation is going to be in play and then buying new properties, you're going to be in a good position. <laughs> yeah, actually, I got to see that like firsthand. And here's here's another thing that is so interesting that happens to so many people. Why do most CPAs do not know about this? And I know it's a broad stroke to say most CPAs, but so many conversation I have, so many conversations I have with CPAs, they're like, "Sorry, we don't we don't do that. We don't know how to use this study." Why is that? Is this not something that's taught? No, there's, <laughs> it's taught. I think there's because our niche is in real estate. You know, we have to know about it, or we'd lose all of our clients. Um, there's certain, just like um, any industry, there's certain things in the industry that. I would feel uncomfortable helping clients with like R and D studies or or things like that for bigger manufacturing clients. Those are things that we're just not well versed in. Mm-hmm. It's not our niche. Mm-hmm. You know, as a small CPA getting started, they're probably working with a lot of ten forty clients that are W two employees. Maybe don't even have real estate investments. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the answer to the question. They're leaving a lot on the table by not learning about it. Is mm-hmm. all I can really say. But. Um, it's definitely something that's well known. And I think especially right now, a lot of people are taking advantage of the good CPAs that I know would run circles around me with the rules. They just, you know, they're well-versed in it and we all challenge each other and try to stay up on the rules. Um, but here's the other problem. The rules are constantly changing, right? Just like depreciation going from a hundred to 80 to 60. Um, the rules are constantly changing. So staying out in front of it is huge. Definitely want to be working with somebody that can confidently say, I know exactly how this is handled right now and how it's going to be handled next year and in the future under the current set of tax law. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, to kind of finish us off, something that we get asked about all the time from a tax perspective is, do I need to purchase my property in an LLC to be able to take those deductions? How do you address that? Yeah, I would say that's the one of the questions I get the most. Um, too. So, and I have the same answer. An LLC does not change the amount of deductions you could take or how you report that property on your tax return. An LLC provides some limited liability protection, kind of formalizes maybe that it's a business and requires you to set up a business account. You could get essentially the same liability protection by making sure the property is properly insured Mm -hmm. and then getting some sort of a personal umbrella policy. Um, I think, you know, that would be more of a discussion with a good real estate attorney. And Mm -hmm. that's why I'm always bouncing ideas off of our real estate attorney. Um, But they would say the same thing. So LLC is really more about entity structure. It has no impact on how you file the tax return unless you have partners involved. If you have partners involved, you know, having the LLC, you've either got to be taxed as a partnership or an S corp. But if you're just doing it on your own, you do not need to purchase it in an LLC. And most banks aren't going to give you a loan in the name of the LLC anyway. Mm-hmm. So the only way to do it is buy it in your name, get the mortgage in your name. And then after you've closed, do a quit claim deed to transfer the title into the LLC. And if you open up an LLC bank account and you really operate that property in and out of that LLC, you'd have some limited liability protection. Like they couldn't come after your personal assets. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, something that our clients will ask all the time is, oh no, I purchased the property in my personal name. Am I still eligible to take these deductions? And the answer is yes. Like 100% yes. All the same deductions are available. Nothing changes on where you put the income and expenses on your tax return. It's all the same. Okay. Thank, thank you for saying it here. <laughs> yeah. Glad to clear that up. Because I, I bet I do it, uh, if not once a day, you know, once every other day. I, and I'm not joking. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Most of the time it's an email. Hey, I'm thinking about yeah. buying my first rental property. Do I need to do this in an LLC or do I need to set up the LLC before I do it? So it's usually a quick call, like a five minute call. And then they understand. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think um, having an LLC actually just helps me organize. Like if I want to do like a bank account for that property, it makes my bookkeeper's life so much easier. hundred percent agree. And that in itself is worth something, but you don't have to get that set up to get started. Correct. You can do it even after you purchase the property and after you've been reporting it. So that can be done after the fact. And you're right. I mean, setting up the LLC, it kind of formalizes that this is a business and it makes you treat it like a business. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, how can people find you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, our, the name of our firm is elite tax and accounting LLC. Um, so my website, my contact information is on there. My email address is just Troy at etacpa.com. And we'll link all of this in the show notes as well. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Troy, yeah, for coming yeah. on today. Thank you for answering all of these burning questions. Um, if you have any questions for Troy, definitely do reach out. He's such a talented CPA. He explains things in a way that is easy to digest and understand. Um, and thank you for listening in today. We'll talk to you soon. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend who's also interested in real estate investing. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a review wherever you listen or watch your podcasts.